0: Hello and welcome to episode five of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the pod. Be sure to check out our archive if you've missed any episodes. So far, I've talked with staff members of the Baseball Heritage Museum, the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame, the Kansas Sports Hall of Fame, and the Patriots Hall of Fame. Today on the show, we have Dana Hart, president of the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's the only facility of its kind dedicated to all levels of women's basketball. Dana and I met when we literally ran into each other in the lobby of a hotel conference center in Wichita when I attended day one of the International Sports Heritage Association Conference in 2019. She's the current president of ISHA, so we also talk about her leadership of that organization. Dana was very instrumental in me getting settled in at the conference and was very gracious. I'll be exploring the life of Cinda Berenson during this episode's overtime segment. Be sure to stay tuned after my conversation with Dana for some facts about the mother of women's basketball. I hope you enjoy. So today on the show, we have Dana Hart, president of the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in Knoxville, Tennessee. Dana, how are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you.
0: Yeah, good to have you here. So I wanted to start by kind of talking about your background and how you got into the sports museum world and then made your way over to the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. Could you tell that for us?
1: Sure. Um, I have always loved sports. I grew up in a family that watched sports. I'm originally from Missouri, so we were a divided family. My sister was a a Kansas City fan and I was a St. Louis fan, so a little bit of rivalry there, But, but following not only professional sports, but college sports. Uh, was always a big part of our life. It seemed like there was always a game on if there was a game playing on TV or on the radio, it was on. So loving sports. And and I had worked in the profit world uh, for quite a long time. And, and I felt like I had been making money for someone else, which is not a bad thing. But I decided I want to do something uh, with a nonprofit that gave back, you know, and and sports seemed like the perfect thing. And and I have a passion for women and girls in sports. So that's kind of what led me to the Hall of Fame.
0: Cool. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that, because I know that you guys do a lot of educational programs with kids and do a lot of outreach in the community as well. So like, what are some of your favorite initiatives that the museum does to really bring in girls and help them see that sports are for them, too?
1: Sure. On the youth level, we reach out to girls because that is our, you know, kind of our focus with the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. But we also reach out to young boys because I think right now our youth are really looking for something to be a part of. So we do education programs through, which is kindergarten through fifth grade at the Hall of Fame. And basically what we do is we do different categories. We'll do math, science, physics, English, history. So there's all these different studies that we do, but we relate it back to sports. So we'll take something that may be a subject that a child doesn't like, and we'll make it fun. And, and related to sports. And by the end of the day, they're like, you know, math is really cool or science is really cool, or, you know, you can do some 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 neat things with history. So I, I think our education program really reaches out to the youth to show them that um, there's much more to sports than just playing the sport. You know, there's there's all the, all kinds of careers in sports and, and giving them the opportunity to see that. And then, like I said, you know, our youth are looking for something. So I think it's so important For us as history museums and, you know, sports attractions to show the youth what is out there and the positive impact that sports can have on your life from a young age to, you know, past adulthood.
0: Yeah, that's a big theme that I've learned when talking to folks at sports museums and doing these interviews is like really reaching out to kids because they are the next generation of sports fans. And I know, like I was a kid fairly recently. And so like coming to some of these museums and experiencing like the interactive displays and the programs and outreach that you all do, it really does make a difference because like I was going to love sports anyway, because of how I was raised, but then someone who maybe just isn't exposed to sports at home or something like that, if they come on like a school field trip, then and that could kind of spark an interest that could be lifelong and then they'll pass that on to their own kids. So that's pretty cool that the museum does some of those things. And you told me a story where there was a group in like 2009, I believe, and they come from other countries and it was really kind of impactful for the museum. Would you want to tell that story?
1: Sure, we um, work, what was the first event we did but we now work with the University of Tennessee Center for Sport, Peace and Society, which at that time was run by Dr. Sarah Hillier and Dr. Ashley Huffman. Dr. Ashley Huffman has gone on and is working with the State Department. But Dr. Sarah Hillier, who is one of the founders of the organization, is still actively involved. And that is a group that works with the State Department to promote peace through sport, which is incredible. So the first group we had come in was in 2009, and it was a group from Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and Tajikistan and and Kurdistan. And so these are, are girls, and it was all female basketball players and their coach. And these are girls that in their countries, girls are not allowed to play basketball. Girls are not allowed to have any positions of power for the most part. And there was so much turmoil going on, even worse at that time. There still is, but it was even worse at that time. So as we brought them through the Hall of Fame, and, and they were here in Knoxville, Tennessee for Pat Summit's camps, Pat, um, Coach Pat Summit had invited them over to her camp which was phenomenal. But we brought them into the hall and we went through the Hall of Fame and told the history of women's basketball from 1892 forward with translators, with four or five translators, actually. And it was interesting watching these girls engage and learn about the sport from the beginning and not knowing the history and seeing them come together as a group. You know, it wasn't This country fighting that country, it was a whole group coming together for the love of the sport. And I will tell you, watching them at the Hall of Fame, enjoying the story and seeing the history was a night I will never forget. And one of my favorite moments, and I'll go ahead and just kind of mention this, at the end of the evening, in our rotunda area, when you first come into the Hall of Fame, we have a huge bronze statue that is the Eastman, and that is the award we give to the inductees. Every year, it is sponsored by Eastman Chemical Company, and it represents the past, present, and future of women's basketball. So later in the evening, I walked out into the rotunda, and there's a group of these girls lying on the floor around our mission statement, which is honor the past, celebrate the present, and promote the future. And they're, they're kind of fanned out, laying on the floor, looking up at the statue. And what a moment! And I still get chills even right now when I'm telling the story of what that night meant because we're bringing together communities and we're we're fostering peace through a sport, you know. And that was years ago. Now the program has been in 82 countries, and it's not only women's sports; it's men's sports, you know. It's it's Paralympic. It's 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 a combination of everything, and it's just amazing at how sport can be utilized for more than just the game you know, um, to create peace and harmony in our world. I think that is is a key piece of it.
0: That's incredible, Dana, like hearing that story. And it, it kind of does give me, me chills because it's bringing people together that otherwise wouldn't have known about the history of women's basketball. But it's really more than that. It's about like the history of kind of women finding themselves and having their kind of own sport to take hold of. And especially coming from another country where they are like, really disregarded and like can't play basketball that's that's super special that you and the museum were able to do that and you mentioned pat summit too like i wanted to ask you about her because obviously the museum is in knoxville the same city as the university of tennessee so i was curious like why why the museum is there and then like pat summit's role in the creation and you probably met pat summit um, before her passing i would assume so do you want to just talk about some of those things with Pat Summit and Knoxville?
1: Sure, sure. First off all, I'll kind of go through how the Hall of Fame ended and not ended up in Knoxville, because I think that is a, an important story. Um, the Hall of Fame was originally supposed to be in Jackson, Tennessee, which is in West Tennessee, the western part of Tennessee. For those not familiar with Tennessee, Tennessee is a very narrow state, but a very long state. So for me to drive from Knoxville to Memphis is almost an eight-hour drive. So we can get to the beach The East Coast Beach, faster than we can get to Memphis. It's kind of funny. But Knoxville is based in the east part of Tennessee, and the Hall of Fame was supposed to be in Jackson, Tennessee, in West Tennessee. And then we get the question, why Jackson, Tennessee? And and I think that's a good question. The NAIA tournaments, which were the um, predecessor to the Women's Final Four with the NCAA, were held in Jackson. And and that was the reason to to build the Hall of Fame there. And unfortunately, well, I guess fortunately for Knoxville, Jackson was not able to raise the funding to build the Hall of Fame. So two very influential women in Tennessee, Coach Pat Summit, which I think everybody um, is familiar with if you're familiar with basketball, and Gloria Ray, who was the president of the Greater Knoxville Sports Corporation at the time, said, let's bring it to Knoxville. Pat and Gloria had worked together. Gloria was the athletic director of women's sports at the University of Tennessee for quite a period of time. And they were um, best friends. So they said, what can we do to bring it to Knoxville? So they reached out to not only the community, the government, but, but to supporters of women's basketball around the world. And the Hall of Fame was built and opened in 1999 in downtown Knoxville, right on the riverfront. So Pat was very instrumental in that. And then Pat's impact on the sport in the Hall of Fame. I knew Pat. She was a a dear friend. I would say a mentor um, in some ways, but um, a driving force, I, I guess, you know, you never got by with a lot with Pat. She was the kindest person you would ever meet but she would tell you if you were headed in the wrong way or, or, or she thought there was a better way of doing it. And I appreciated that from her. Her impact on the Hall of Fame was huge. You know, I don't think anybody can talk about her career in, in a negative light in any way. But to have the University of Tennessee and that legacy of Pat Summit just down the road from the Hall of Fame, we can see the, the football stadium and Thompson Bowling Arena from the Hall of of Fame. So to be that close in proximity is fantastic. And I'll I'll tell you a little bit about Pat. Pat was very actively involved in the hall throughout her life. She was a founding board member of the Hall of Fame and served on the board until her passing. And and here's a little story that I think says a lot about Pat. After Pat had been diagnosed with early stage dementia, Alzheimer's, she, um, it was probably about three years later and and the, the disease was progressing And at that time, she had caregivers um, at her home. She was still living at home and had caregivers. And one day she showed up at the hall um, at the front door with her caregivers, unannounced, just here comes Pat. And basically said, my caregivers know me as Pat the person, but they don't know me as Pat the coach. And I've come to walk them through and tell them my story as a coach. And I think that is amazing. And, And what's interesting is that's probably nothing that Pat would have ever have done because she was a very humble person. But I think it's, it's just fascinating that she wanted her caregivers to know truly who she was. So um, she's been an inspiration to so many and, and we, we continue to feel her spirit in, in most things that we do.
0: That's incredible because I'm sure the caregivers maybe knew a little bit in her connections with basketball, but if she would walk them around museums, I'm sure it was just like, wow, just like the impact that she had at the Lady Volunteer Program and like creating so much and having a ton of impact. And you kind of showed me a link last time when we were emailing before this of a documentary that kind of shows Pat's relationship through those camps that you mentioned earlier to some women and girls in the Middle East. So do you want to talk about that? Because I thought that was super fascinating.
1: Sure. There is a young lady that was part of that group that I talked about that came through in 2009. And at that point, she was 17, maybe 16, 17 years old. And her name was Hoshi. That was her first name. A little bit quieter, I felt like at that time. And and she probably was one of the young ladies um, on the floor looking up at the statue. But Hoshi said when she left um, the States, that she wanted to become the Pat Summit of Women's Basketball in Iraq. And I think that's a strong statement. It would be wonderful to be like Pat Summit, but for someone to say they want to be the Pat Summit in another country, I think is is a lot. So Hoshi went back and worked with her coach, Rizgar, and really pushed for the rights for girls to be able to play the sport. And that took a lot because parents, you know, there's this, this fighting going on and parents are trying to protect their daughters and, and playing a sport is a little bit of a risk at, even at that time. But Hoshi went on with Rizgar and Rizgar created a basketball academy in Iraq. Okay, so let's forward back now to 2021. This basketball academy, as of a couple of weeks ago, is fully Staffed, fully enrolled, has a waiting list of over 460 girls, parents wanting their girls to go to this academy. Last year, they did their first mother daughter basketball clinic. So, so the vision has happened. And Hoshi came back to the United States through the help of the State Department. And Drs. Hillier and Huffman put together a documentary, and it's called Way Back Pat in Iraq. And it talks about the story and what it means to empower girls and young women through sport and what a change maker that can be. And it's Hoshi's story of of how Pat impacted her life and had her have a a larger drive in her country. And um, after the showing of the documentary, um, Hoshi came to the stage and we had a question and answer session uh, with Hoshi on the stage here in Knoxville. And um, I will tell you one of the most moving moments from that is we had a lady open mic, a lady come up and she said, I have served in the military for X amount of years. It was a large number, can't even remember. And she said, I want to thank you because when I was serving over there, I was not allowed to go into restaurants. I was not allowed to walk down certain streets because I was a female. And I want to thank you for what you were doing for the the girls and women of your country. And she just expanded on what a change. And that gives me chills once again. What a change Hoshi and Rizgar had made. And Hoshi said, can I lean down and give you a hug? And and to watch those two women embrace, you've got two different countries um, coming together. And I, I think that just says a lot about the program, about Hoshi's dream, about the impact that Pat had on her. And, and what sport can do, you know, if you allow it to, to happen. And I'll tell you another, I, I was out a couple of days ago working in my yard and my next door neighbor, there's three little boys and the six-year-old, I asked him about their game that they were playing in their backyard. And I said, you know, how many kids were playing? Cause it was a lot of kids. And he said, well, we had 13 playing. And I said, okay, you had 13 playing. And he said, yeah, but the girls don't count. And you can imagine my reaction. I said, What do you mean the girls don't count? And the dad was standing back, you know, with this smirk on his face. And he goes, Well, some of the girls weren't playing. So they didn't count. And I said, Okay. But if they played, would they count? And he said, Yes, ma'am. And I think that, you know, it's those little things we can do along the way that really impact how we're going to propel all of our sports.
0: Yeah, whether it's men's sports or women's sports or raising the kids, both in America and other countries, like there's so much that sports can do. And like both of those stories you told are really kind of indicative of the change, like you said, that sports can create. And that's something that I want to do with my career. And even if I like don't work in sports, um, like is the current case, how can I still impact people through sports? And that's what the museum's mission is, is to honor the past, but then also kind of promote the future with the kids and with some of these programs that you're doing. So that's, it's incredible to hear those stories, Dana, where it's different countries, it's peace, and it's just a simple game because basketball is fairly simple. When you think about it, you put the ball into the basket, but there's like so much more that it can be done. So that's awesome. I wanted to talk to you also about COVID's impact on the museum, because I'm sure that had quite an impact as things kind of shut down maybe in March. And then I believe the museum was closed for several months and has reopened. So could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Uh, yeah, Andrew, COVID uh, is a bad word in my in my book right now. I think it is in a lot of people's. Um, for sure. So, so last year, I will tell you, we were in the office working on March 16th and we, we heard COVID was coming and we, you know, we'd all kind of heard this kind of rumbling of what was happening. And then we received notification that day, you have to close, you're, you're, you're mandated to close and we don't know when you'll come back. Now that's that, that's hard to understand. So, so immediately we started contacting people that had events scheduled and so forth and taking care of the business and not knowing when we would come back, I think was the hardest part. So we were closed from March 17th of 2020 through the end of April. So we opened back up June 1st, 2020. We were one of the first sports museums to open back up from what I understand. And we took a chance and said, we're going to do everything we can to remain open. And I will tell you during the first opening days, there was nobody there. You know, but we continued on. We continued doing what we needed to do for the Hall of Fame. We had to cancel our induction in 2020. We had to postpone some conferences. The final four was canceled. And that was what was tough with COVID is COVID hit in March. You know, two weeks later, we were headed to the final four. And then that was canceled. So that switched up everything. But we're strong and we're resilient. And there's winners and losers in every game and we decided we were going to be a winner. So we, you know, bounced back and did the protocols that we needed to followed the safety standards and, and have been open consistently since June 1st. We've not had to close back down. We've been lucky to have only had uh, one associate Come down with COVID, and that's while she was on vacation. So it wasn't even in our facility. And we're now coming back strong. Our events are starting to come back. We're still under quite a few restrictions, um, but we're open for business. We had to kind of flip our focus last year from events, induction, the final four, and so forth to fundraising. You know, if if we're going to be closed, how do we maintain? our operation standards. And so I switched my role a little bit and said I'm going to I'm going to do fundraising and and I will tell you our biggest help were our past inductees stepping up and saying we are here for you. Obviously we received some government assistance through the PPP programs which was great. We have a very small staff there were only three full-time members so that means your PPP is very small. But Um, You know, a big shout out to our inductees because they really helped us move through that time period and we are back up. Our business is still not where it was before the pandemic, um, but it is coming back strong and we are getting guests from all over the place. I mean, we've got international guests coming in. We have guests from throughout the United States coming in. And and I think we're going to be seeing a very strong summer, I will say. 98% 98% of my staff is vaccinated at this time, uh, so that is really good. And, and we're really looking forward to hearing lots of bouncing balls and lots of screaming kids and even though we don't allow running, running in the Hall of Fame, because um, on the ball courts, no matter what you say, you're going to get running.
0: Yeah, that's great to hear that the museum is coming back stronger and having that kind of winning mentality and saying, like, this is a challenge in front of us, but let's power through it and follow the guidelines, but remain open for not only our own benefit, but also the benefit of the public, I think, is a pretty pretty cool stance to take. So, and speaking of inductees too, I wanted to ask about induction ceremonies because I've heard from other museums that like that's their biggest event and it makes sense that it is their biggest event of the year um, because that's kind of the goal of Hall of Fames in a lot of cases. But what does those ceremonies look like for you guys? And then kind of keeping in touch with the inductees, like you said, that's great that they continue to impact the museum after they've been inducted.
1: So our induction is typically the second weekend of June every year. So this year, in January, February, you know, we're looking at a June induction and and having to make a decision. Can we host it in June the way we want to or what do we need to do? And we knew we could not postpone it again. So we have moved our June induction to August 21st of this year. And, and I feel confident that by August, we will be in a much, much better position to host our inductees there. We have eight inductees this year, which is a large number. Uh, we typically do six, but we're looking to have the best event we can have for the class of 2020, 2021. Class of 2020 became the class of 21. So I just kind of blow through that class 2021. But You know, they are excited to be here and we want to honor them in the way that they should be honored. Now with the inductee weekend, our past inductees do come back. Not every single one of them, but we do have a large contingency that come back to the Hall of Fame. And it's a great weekend. You know, this year, some of the guests that we already know, names that people will know that are past inductees that are coming back. We have Mimi Griffin. We have Robin Roberts. We have coach Ari Emma. Those are just a few of the names that we know were coming back for our induction weekend. So, you know, tickets are on sale and it's a great time if you love women's basketball to come to Knoxville. Um, There's so much happening around the game and to be able to have a chance to see these coaches and players and contributors on that weekend. And we do an autograph session on Saturday, uh, which will be Saturday the 21st. And it's open to the public and free of charge. So the Hall of Fame is open Saturday and Sunday free of charge charge to the public. So I always say, if you've never had a chance to come to the Hall of Fame, it's a great weekend to come. There are activities going on. You can also buy a ticket to the induction ceremony and and be with this group the entire weekend. And the Hall of Fame weekend pretty much epitomizes what the sport is about. You know, it's about that connection. It's about the love of the game. It's about winners. Sometimes it's about losers, but it's about having that impact.
0: That's cool that you get the community involved and kind of open it up a little bit and like say here's a induction ceremony with some legends of women's basketball. Why don't you come meet them, come get their autograph. And I'm sure there's some really cool stories of like people meeting like kind of their idols and their, their favorite players and coaches. So that's really cool that um, you're able to do that on induction weekend.
1: Yeah. It's kind of our gift back to the community. You know, there's people. And and when I say the community, that can be anybody that wants to come in. I think, you know, our admissions not expensive. It's seven 95 and five 95, but still, there are people, if you're a larger family, that you can't afford to bring in your whole family. So it's a great way to, to have um, exposure to the Hall of Fame and, and just see what we're about on that weekend.
0: For sure. And some of the things that you would see, I believe you have the largest basketball in the world at the museum. Is that correct? The largest basketball
1: in the world sits on top of our rotunda the back rotunda and underneath it or kind of off to the side of it is our actual ball court area so we have a great uh, ball court area that has three almost half courts um, a passing course dribbling course basketballs love to bounce in there and and that's where we love to hear the noise and I will tell you that was the hardest thing I said when we came back from being shut down is not hearing basketballs and tennis shoes squeaking and kids screaming you know there's some great challenges that go on on that ball court you know everybody comes in and no matter your age grab a basketball and start playing Mm
0: -hmm. yeah it's great that the museum is interactive in that way and I'm from Kansas City and they have the college basketball experience up there Mm -hmm. and it's sort of similar where you can walk through and see the legends of college basketball and then go like try it out for yourself and it's great that the Women's Hall of Fame does that too where you're getting the kids involved and I'm sure they love that if they come for like a field trip or some sort of other trip. And then I bet the teachers and chaperones love it too, because they kind of get to get out the energy from the kids and have them um, play on the court. So that's really cool.
1: Yeah. I would say most of our field trips that the the schools take, the teachers, if, if they're not participating with the kids, they'll sit back. And they can just let the kids run. And we're taking care of the kids, doing activities on the ball courts with them, making sure that they're warming up and doing stretches ahead of time and dodging basketballs as they come flying around. But it's it's a great opportunity. And I think uh, for the younger kids, many of them fall asleep on the bus going back to school. So and I think one of the best things that I see is when you have senior groups come through, you know, and they haven't picked up a ball in years. Well, all of a sudden, you know, that 70, 80 year old person becomes eight-year-old on the ball courts and then you get the smack talk and all that good stuff going on so that's great to see also
0: now that you brought that up with uh, senior groups i had a great aunt that's now passed and she was like a teenager in the early part of the 20th century and she said that her gym classes would play basketball but it was like divided into three different sections for women's and it was kind of uh, obviously very infant stages of basketball generally, but then especially women's basketball. So, could you kind of talk about the very beginning of women's basketball because that's something like I'm not really aware of. Sure.
1: So, it's interesting. Dr. James Naismith um, invented basketball in 1891 um, in Springfield, Massachusetts, and and the basketball he invented is 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 pretty much the men's game. And so, Cinda Barons Abbott was a physical education teacher at Smith College, just up the road from Springfield. And she was teaching a lot of gymnastics and a lot of calisthenics at the time. She had been a sickly youth, I guess I should say, and, and gymnastics and calisthenics seemed to be the way for her to gain her health. So she heard about this game of basketball and she looked into it and she thought, okay, well, we can do that. It may be a little fast paced for the girls. So The changes that she put into place, and and let me just say, women's basketball was invented in 1892, men's was 1891. So we're talking a very short period of time there. Um, So Senta's game basically was, you know, it was three court, you know, you pass the ball, there was no dribbling allowed. The women were allowed to play a very short period of time, and then they had to rest because if you remember, 1892 was still the Victorian period. And women were very fragile and delicate and, you know, the uniforms were interesting, the the sleeves had to come all the way down on the wrist, the bloomer type bottoms had to come all the way down or have stockings so the skin was not exposed so the only thing on the women's basketball Uniform that was exposed was their face and their hands, basically. To designate teams so you knew who your team was, there were like these kerchiefs that were worn around the neck with different colors. And that's how you knew who was on your team. So it was it was a very slow-paced, very boring game. I will tell you the first collegiate game, the score was one to two. So that sounds really exciting, I know. And then the game has progressed as we've gone on. It's gone from a passing only game to the dribbling game to the game that we see now, which is very truly fundamental basketball. You know, and and if you watch the Final Four this year, I think it was very interesting to see the girls game because it was fast paced, but it was true fundamental basketball. And I know not comparing the men and women's game too much, but I was watching one of the men's games and I was like, okay, they shoot, they run down, they shoot, they miss, they run down the court, they shoot, they miss, they run down the court, they shoot, they miss. And I'm like, okay, let's go back to fundamentals and let's make that basket and let's rebound it and go down the court. And I, I think that's something that we see a little bit different, um, still in the game. And, And I know there's a lot of people that say, um, the women's game's too slow so forth and so on. But, but I think if you Look at the true fundamentals of the basketball game. the The women are still following that, but but basketball has come a long way, you know, through the years of how we play the game. I know at one time AAU did not believe girls should play basketball, which is is hard to see when AAU is one of the biggest proponents of girls basketball now. But seeing the the teams and leagues struggle not only the basketball struggle uh, but the women's struggle has been very interesting
0: that's cool so it it's awesome to hear how it was so different back in the very early part of the 20th century and then today like it's it's the same fundamental basketball and the rules are a little bit different but I do like that the women kind of play more as a team because I, I feel like sometimes the men's game is like r- really athletic and really like isolated. And it's like, what can I do? And the fancy dunks and stuff. And that's great. But like the women in the passing, like it's very crisp a lot of the time. And it's very like fun to watch if you love team basketball. So I, I really think, and we saw that this year at the final four, more publicity and Um, games being on national television and all of that. So I'm sure that's a big part of the museum too. And I know you guys recognize the media aspect too, because I'm sure that's grown exponentially ever since um, women's basketball kind of came into the forefront.
1: You know, we do and the media, you know, we honor as inductees, our different categories are coaches, players, officials, and contributors. And within that contributor category, you have quite a few of the media people. Um, I mentioned earlier, Robin Roberts. Robin Roberts is inducted into the Hall of Fame Mm -hmm. as a media contributor. Mimi Griffin is honored as a media contributor. Mel Greenberg, the guru of women's basketball that created the first women's basketball poll, honored as a contributor. So we, we do have quite a few of the media. They're a big part of the Hall of Fame because they're the ones that are out there telling the story.
0: Yeah, and they're growing the game ever since... The, the days of like no dribbling and i'm sure there was no media coverage back then because people were not really sure what it what it was because women playing sports was so outlandish at that time and for the wrong reasons so it's great now that the men and the women get the publicity that they do and we're able to highlight these athletes but also the officials and the coaches and the other contributors too that the museum highlights so that's great
1: and andrew that you just made a a good point you know as far as the visibility When the game was originally started, the the gymnasium was locked and there were no men allowed in the gymnasium because of the delicate nature of the women and they didn't want to see the men to see the women playing the game so it's, it's come a long way and you know and the officials wow. What a supportive group of people. And I always say when I'm doing a tour with the officials, you love them or hate them, depending on how the game is going. What is interesting is when we induct an official, man, they they have each other's back. They are a strong group of, of people. So hats off to the officials, Um, even if you love them or hate them on the court, they take care of each other.
0: Very true. And that's a hard job. You got to react so fast and you got to be in good shape yourself and make all the correct calls and know all the rules and deal with coaches and fans and a lot of pressure and a lot of the great officials you don't notice them because they're so good and consistent and that's true across all sports but especially especially basketball where they're running up and down the court right with the players it's it's pretty cool if you just take a couple possessions if you're watching the game and just watch the officials because they move around a lot and they got to be in the right position and know the right calls and then make it so that's great that they're recognized too because they should be
1: yeah and the officials are you know they're watching the whole game they're not just watching the person they're supposed to be guarding or whatever they're they're on top of it all they're watching you know what the players are doing on both teams they're watching what the coaches are doing you know it's I would say it's a tough job but they are a a great group of individuals
0: I wanted to shift now to talking about how me and you initially met was at the um, ISHA conference in 2019 and I know you're president of that group now Dana and just kind of talking about that role and that kind of part of your life as you lead other sports museums and that, that organization. So how did you get involved in ISHA at first? And then what has it been doing throughout COVID and throughout some of these um, challenging times to help support sports museums?
1: Sure. ISHA is the International Sports Heritage Association. And it is its, it's responsibility is basically to promote support and protect sports heritage throughout the world. And it's a great organization. How I got involved is I I just heard about the organization. I thought, okay, well, let's go check it out. And so I went to a conference in Denver and I said, we should do that. You know, we should do this. We should host a conference. You know, when I go in, I go all in. That's just who I am. And sometimes my, my team says, Dana, come back, back to reality. And sometimes I don't have a reality, so that's, that's, that's been good and it's been bad. So we got involved in the organization as the Hall of Fame, and then we ended up hosting it in 2014, I think it was, or 15, at the Hall of Fame. And it was a great week of sessions and so forth. But what ISHA means to me is it is an organization where like-minded institutions and individuals can come together. They can talk about the successes and challenges that they are having. They can talk about the future of sports. How do we protect that heritage? And you know, it's it's very important for us, and it's all sports. So, you know, we've had scuba diving there, we've had constituents from museums in China, we have the Sri Lanka Sports Commission that comes Australia. We have a, a great Canadian contingency that's a part of it. But like I said, it's all different sports. I've learned more about sports that I never knew through this group. But the thing about it is we are sharing like-minded experiences about the sports world and how do we protect that history and heritage. And I think that's the biggest piece. And and kind of how we met, we were in Wichita, Kansas, Kansas Sports Hall of Fame, and Jordan Poland uh, with Kansas Sports Hall of Fame. We're hosting the conference. And it was the first day of our meetings and we're in the hotel and we're wandering around because it's a you know, good size hotel and nobody knows where they're going and their signage. But, you know, you're still like, OK, where am I going? And I ran into you in the hallway and I said, do you know where you're going? I think or something like that. Not, hey, hey, do you know where you're going? Are you lost? And you, because I could tell you were probably going to the Isha conference and uh, you just had that sports look about you. I guess that's what it was.
0: I probably looked lost.
1: <laughs> you, you probably did. Love, love of sports knowledge. And And so I spoke to you and I said, and you said, well, I'm looking for the ISHA conference. And I said, that's where I'm going. Follow me. And you said, oh, okay. And there were, I think, two or three other um, individuals that were part of the emerging professionals group, which is our student portion of the ISHA organization. But I I think one of the things that I would say is the emerging professionals group is so important. To be an emerging professional in our organization, it's it's a $50 membership a year for students. And as a mother, I would tell my student, this is $50 well worth spending, because it's going to allow you access to all of these organizations to network, to use as a resource to know when there's openings and positions to know when there's internships opening. And I I think it's just it's a wonderful opportunity for students. And so the last years, I've been first vice president on the board. I have served as conference committee chair more years than I want to count. But this year, I am actually president of the organization for a two year term. And it's it's been a tough one. Um, I said, well, how come I ended up being president with COVID and making all those decisions. So we did have to postpone our conference last year, which is held in October. And we just, and we made it a virtual conference, something we've never done. So we had to learn how to do that and make that happen. And it was very successful. So this year, our conference was supposed to be in Newport, Rhode Island with the Tennis Hall of Fame. And we just made the decision at the board meeting this week to postpone it and move it virtually. The thing with Isha though, is in my time with, with the organization, you know, I've been to the Colorado sports hall of fame. I've been to the Kansas sports hall of fame, the Tennessee sports hall of fame. We hosted it. um, I've been at Calgary, um, at their hall of fame and their Olympic site, which is, is fantastic. You know, I've been to Williamsport with little league, you know, we've, we've been a little bit of everywhere. Our next stop is going to be either Toronto with golf, Canada, or with the Green Bay Packers. So it's, it's, a, you know, it's just every sport and opportunity. And I think with Isha, you know, it's not just protecting the sports heritage, but it's making those connections because everybody in that group is working in the sports world. And I think that is fantastic.
0: Yeah. That was something that really opened my eyes at the conference was like the wide range of museums. Cause you have larger museums, like you all, like the Patriots hall of fame, like brands and museums that, like everybody knows in america at least for the most part but then there's all these international organizations and i think that's great that it's an international group and you can learn a lot from them i'm sure about kind of their challenges and their experiences but then you also have these little small museums that are just like a county museum or in this kind of niche sport and there's lessons to be learned there too so it's that was really eye-opening to me and then all the vendors that are involved because that's something i never thought about was like. Where do all the touchscreens come from or like the lighting at museums? So that was really new. And then I'm really grateful that I ran into you at the conference. Like you said, like right in the hallway. I remember that like it was yesterday and then getting to um, network and just meet all those people because Jordan Poland, um, who you mentioned earlier and who I've talked to on the podcast, he, he told me before the conference like you're going to get out of it what you put in. So I was like, well, why don't I take advantage of this opportunity that I've been given and really make the most of it. So I think that's a lesson for anything that you do is like really take the opportunity and run with it. And you never know where you're going to end up. So yeah, it's, it's been great to continue to network with Isha professionals as I do the podcast and they've been very supportive as, as have you, Dana. So I'm grateful for that as I do the podcast and hopefully I'll see you again at another conference sometime soon.
1: I've got many years on you and experience, but, I, uh, you know, that is one of the things that I truly believe is the harder you work and the more you put in of yourself, the more you're going to get out.
0: Right. Well, Dana, this has been great. I really appreciate your time and your, um, stories and the impact that you're making through women and girls basketball. Cause I think that's really important. And could you tell people where to find the museum, whether online or in person?
1: Sure. Uh, would love to do that. So, our website is WBHOF.com, Women's Basketball Hall of Fame.com, WBHOF. And then our address is 700 Hall of Fame Drive, Knoxville, Tennessee. We are right on the riverfront in downtown Knoxville. Um, if you've not been to Knoxville, it's a great place, a lot of fun. Uh, we have a great walking trails from the Hall of Fame all the way down the riverfront to the university to downtown. It's an easy walk, 10, 15 minutes, and you're at the stadium and the arena and five minutes you're downtown um, at everything Knoxville has to offer. And then I'd like to share a little bit of information about Esha. Sure. You know, it's sportsheritage.org is the organization. And if you Google international sports heritage association, you will find more about our organization on the website, but it's, you know, a, I think I'm representing two hats here, you know, definitely the hall of fame and what that means, but also the Isha organization, uh, which has meant a lot to me. And I've made great connections. I've, I've had great resources from that. And I've got lifelong friends from all different sports that I will stay in touch with. And I look forward to Andrew watching your career as you move forward. And I've kind of used you as an example with my interns, you know, see what you can do. So um, we are there to promote sports and to help anyone be successful in the sports industry.
0: That's great, Dana. Thank you for what you do both with Isha and with the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, and be sure to check it out if you're in Knoxville. So thank you so much, Dana.
1: Thank you. Have a great day.
0: You too. During this episode's overtime segment, I wanted to highlight the mother of women's basketball, Cinda Berenson-Abbott. Cinda basically created the women's game you heard Dana discuss while director of physical education at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, about 30 minutes up the road from James Naismith in Springfield. Cinda was part of the inaugural class of Women's Basketball Hall of Fame inductees in 1999. Cinda was born March 19, 1868, in a small Jewish community in Lithuania. She grew up in Boston after her father immigrated in the 1870s. And Cinda originally studied music but was very frail and had to switch schools to gain strength. This was where she learned about physical education, doing some of those exercises that Dana mentioned in our conversation. She became a gymnastics teacher at the age of 23 at Smith College in 1892, and she both heard about and read James Naismith's article about his new creation and wanted to use basketball for female exercise. However, she was worried it would be seen as masculine if women played, because this is how females' exercising were thought of at the time. And as Dana said, no men were allowed in the gyms where females were playing. Berenson's game stressed cooperation and avoided any roughness. There were three sections of the court, there was no dribbling or steals. It's basically unrecognizable compared to today's basketball. But, the game continued to spread and eventually formal rules needed to exist. Spalding's Athletic Library published her official women's basketball rulebook in 1901. This was their first rulebook for women, and Berenson was the first female editor of a sports rulebook. The Women's Basketball Hall of Fame has an original copy. Cinda served as chairperson of the Women's Basketball Committee for 12 years. And women's basketball was really the first team sport that women got to play together. And it continued to evolve over time based on Cinda's game. And Berenson wasn't really out to create a professional sport. She just wanted women to get exercise. She passed away in California in 1954. And she was the first female inductee into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 1985 and was among the first class of inductees into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in 1999. What a legacy she has left behind. You can find the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame online at wbhof.com or on Hall of Fame Drive in Knoxville. In the show notes, you can find links to the museum's website and social media pages, as well as a great article about Cinda Berenson I used in my research. I appreciate Dana taking time to be my fifth guest. Thanks for listening to episode five of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Hallowed Ground on your podcast app of choice so you don't miss our next one. You can email me with any comments, feedback, or suggestions at hallowedgroundpod at gmail.com. Thanks again. Until next time, sports fans.